Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, I have the opportunity to interview Richard about a sermon he recently presented on Matthew chapter 14 verses 14 to 22 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 10 to 18. Richard explains how in both readings, the American obsession with being special is undermined by the Bible's critique of the natural but deceptive human impulse to seek differentiation either through personal achievement or affiliation. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 29 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This past weekend, I was out sick. And it's nice to have an Old Testament and a Hebrew scholar in the parish who is seminary educated because it's very easy to ask him to preach in your stead. So early on Sunday morning, I called Dr. Benton and mentioned to him that I had a severely impacted wisdom tooth, which actually means at my age that I wasn't so wise to not have them removed earlier, but I didn't. So I had to deal with my medical issues and Dr. Benton was on to preach. So the gospel this weekend was Matthew chapter 14, verses 14 to 22. But there was also a beautiful one of one of I mean, I always say this about Paul's letters, one of my favorites, but they're all my favorites. It was 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. Would you talk about your sermon, Dr. Benton, and how you presented these two texts together to the parish? To begin, I'm grateful for God's providence that in my early 20s I had my wisdom teeth removed (laughs) so that I would be well prepared to, to give a sermon this week. The thing that was most important, and this was an interesting idea to a lot of people in the parish, as much as you talk about it, Father, the American obsession with being special. Now, I talked about it in the context of the Americans thinking they're special, but one of the Palestinian members of our parish afterwards said, this isn't only an American thing, is it? And I said, yeah, no, I think you're right. Human beings have always wanted to be special. And even if you look at Greek mythology, the biggest sin is hubris, which is the idea that the gods set you up to be special, but now you're going to have your own course of action. So in Greek mythology, you could be special, but that was only a designation of the gods. You didn't make yourself special. You were born with a special gift, but you had a responsibility. And also going beyond your responsibility was considered one of the worst sins you could do. It was considered going against God. And as Americans, and I'm going to speak from an American point of view because I think specialness is something that we use so much about being special and you're special and we're all special and these are all phrases we use commonly. So that's why I use this language. But look, Adam wanted to be special. Adam was made as a human being who was able to live comfortably and live well. And what was his sin? His sin was that he could be like God too. It wasn't enough for him to just be Adam. He had to be God too. He had to focus on his special gift. It's not enough for me to say, I work in an office. I have to say, I contribute. 
I add value, which we say in corporate terms. I bring something to the table. That's what we talk about. No, you're a manager and we have a thousand other managers and you come in and you do your job and you make the same amount of money as those other managers and that's the rule we have in our company. That's special enough, isn't it? Why is there want to be special? And this is what Paul is getting upset about with the Corinthians. Because it's not enough to say we have learned the gospel. Paul taught us the gospel. No, it's I am Apollos's. I am Christ's. I am Cephas's. You know, they have to recite all these extra things. I look at that verse 12 that you're referring to. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas or I am of Christ sandwiched between Paul and Christ, and this is an observation that Father Paul Tarazi makes in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, is Apollos, the Roman patrician, representing Greco-Roman society, the Gentiles, the nations, and Cephas. But they're both squeezed in the middle, which means God is showing no partiality whatsoever. You have the Alpha and the Omega. You have the bearer of the gospel and the content of the gospel on either side of that equation but in the middle, the nations and Israel are put on a level footing. So it's evident in even the syntax of the verse that you were talking about that specialness is under attack in 1 Corinthians. Exactly, because what happens with specialness? The following verse tells us exactly what happens with specialness. It divides the community. It divides Christ. If we understand the body of Christ to be the community, it divides the community because one person wants to be special and then the other one wants to be special in their own special way. And then one specialness faces off against another one's specialness and then everyone is worried about what people think of them. And one thing I think it's important is that I believe that we need to tie in this idea of specialness with self-preservation. And why do we have to do this? If anyone has been in a meeting with somebody in authority, they know how important it is not to give the wrong answer. Because if you give the wrong answer and you continue to give the wrong answer, then people will say, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And if you don't belong here, then you're fired. And if you're fired, then you have to go get a job. And if you don't get a job, you're not gonna have money. Without money, you're not gonna have food. There is a survival mechanism about looking smart, looking competent in front of the superior. So you always want to show and highlight your specialness in those situations. Otherwise, you may not have value. If you don't have value, then you could starve. But what's interesting is that in the example you used, your value is tied to something external that's useful for the group. It's different than 1 Corinthians, where those who are of Apollos and those who are of Cephas are making their specialness personal and tied to identity. I think that's important because in American culture, what they would say is that everything should be fair, and so therefore everybody's special. But when they say everybody's special, it's a kind of platonic assumption. They're making an assumption about how the world should work in their mind, and they're imposing it on reality. When in fact, the person in the staff meeting who can provide information that helps the group succeed is more valuable in their function as information provider than the rest of the group. So I don't think that the critique against the special or the chosenness mentality is a critique of hierarchy. It's an attack exactly on fear-driven, personalized, identity-driven specialness that religions claim all the time, that nations claim all the time. Right, and they claim this all the time because it's the same survival mechanism. Right. And this 
fear of self-preservation, in my opinion, is the sin in the prophets. And so what is happening here is that in 1 Corinthians, they're going against the teaching of the gospel, which is that you're all equally low because of the cross. The cross shows that you're all equally low because the Son of God decided, allowed himself to be crucified and brought down low. So therefore, who are you to exalt yourself over him? I want to further differentiate what Paul is saying here as you're articulating it from what our culture says. Because when we talk about people who are put in a position of lowliness in Western society, people in our public institutions, in our educational institutions, use words like empowerment and lifting up. It's very similar to how we deal with power in politics. We try to distribute power equally, but power is the problem. So distributing power or distributing praise does not solve the problem of praise and empowerment. It actually exacerbates it. So what you said is very important where we tend to say everyone should be empowered. Scripture is saying it's an apocalypsis. Everyone should come to see the truth that you are taken from dust and to dust you shall return, which means that the emperor and the crucified thief at the end of the day are on the same level. That's what the cross represents in the Pauline gospel. Yes, there's nothing more unspecial than death. Death makes us all unspecial. Correct. I mean, it reminds me of a Russian joke after the fall of the Soviet Union. They used to say, under the Soviets, we were all equal, all equally poor. Correct. So that's a, you know, they disempowered everyone. My wife will vouch for that. (laughs) Exactly. And, And obviously this is not some kind of endorsement of imposed poverty. So don't misread this, but she said she liked Russia when it was poor. Now, not so much. She liked the church in Russia better when it was poor. Now things have changed. Affluence is, it's a curse in a way because it gives the human being space to find time to abuse other people to increase their affluence. This is what the gospel teaching is. You are not special and therefore you are not allowed to strive to preserve yourself. This is the anti-biological mechanism that scripture is trying to implant in you. Which is obviously what Paul is saying in verse 18 for the teaching of the cross. The cross being not the actual piece of wood but the teaching that he's preaching, the gospel preaching, the content of the cross and the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's an interesting verse because on the one hand, to someone who has power and who buys into the biological impulse that you can somehow make yourself different or differentiate yourself by striving, or to someone who doesn't have power, to them, This seems completely foolish. It seems like it makes no sense. But to those who accept the preaching of Genesis, that you were taken from the dust, and that only God has the power to bestow life, and that only God has the power to achieve anything for humanity, your acceptance of this teaching is unto life. But you talked about how you tied this into the reading from Matthew. Tell us about that interplay. In Corinthians, he's saying that baptism is only functional if you've accepted the teaching. If you don't accept the teaching, then your baptism can divide the body and it can become sinful because you haven't accepted the teaching. Which makes sense because we talked about this in a previous podcast entitled No Place to Lay Your Head. We talked about identity problems. 
and how once you make out of baptism a new circumcision and you make out of baptism an identity badge and you make out of your community something that's set apart it actually undermines the teaching. That's exactly what Paul is saying, according right. to you. Right. So then if we take that and we read the passage from Matthew 14 in light of that, it's interesting if you look at the bigger context, and I'll continue to say, in order to understand these biblical passages, you have to look at them in the bigger context because the order matters, the storyline matters, as we've mentioned before. This comes right after the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is killed. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to mourn. And he turns around and the crowds are now following him. Their baptizer was now dead and they didn't know what to do. So what do they do? They go to Jesus and Jesus feeds them the bread. Now, when the apostle says, well, they're hungry, let them go and get food for themselves. And in my mind, this is referring to self-preservation. He says, no, you give to them. The apostles are to give to the people the bread to keep them alive. Now, this bread and to keep them alive is the teaching because it's the teaching that teaches you that there is no fear of death, that self-elimination is not the worst thing that can happen to it's, you. It's the daily bread in Matthew. We've talked about this. The daily bread is the reading, very obviously. You know, you get a reading every day. You open the scroll, you receive your daily bread so that as you proceed in your daily life, your foot doesn't slip, as it says in the Psalter. Yeah, and the way we know that this bread is the bread that will satisfy you forever is because after he feeds all the people, there are 12 baskets left over, one for each apostle, so that each apostle can then continue to teach. Each time he feeds a multitude, he's not going to have less bread. He's going to have just as much as he did before. This is how we know it's not plain old bread. Because the teaching self-propagates. That's the power of the biblical system. You just teach. You teach anyone who's interested. You share the wisdom of Scripture as often and as frequently as possible. You do it ad nauseum to anyone who wants to hear. And for those who receive it, they'll start doing the same thing. And suddenly, you started just with one person teaching, and now suddenly you have baskets and baskets and baskets full of people doing the same work. Right. I really think it's describing a pedagogical system that is inherent to the way Scripture functions right. in the natural world. Yes, and in reading that in light of what happens with John the Baptist, it's the way that the teaching of the gospel functions, because when their baptizer is eliminated, now they have the teaching. So the way Paul is distinguishing between a baptism unto death, a circumcision, and baptism that's unto life. He's saying the baptism that divides rejects the cross. Here, if you have the baptism of John the Baptist, it's not enough. You still have to go to Jesus and you have to have the teaching. John was preaching repentance of sins. Now you have to go to Jesus in order to get the teaching and he gives the bread. He gives the teaching that is unto life and this is what you need. So baptism will not sustain you. Only the teaching will sustain you. And you can't get it yourself. You can't go off into the village and get it yourself like the apostles wanted them to do. You can only get the teaching from Jesus. But if you don't get it from Jesus, you can get it from the apostles and down the line. I preached at a baptism years ago at a Greek church, and I talked about the aoristos in Greek, the aorist verb structure, and how it's used actually in the Greek when Paul talks about those who have been baptized into Christ. And the implication of the aorist verb form is that you talk about something as though it's already happened, but it's already happened without a horizon, hence aorizo, without horizon. You talk about it as though it's happened, 
but implicit in the word is an understanding that it will be determined at the end whether it's happened. So it's kind of like when a director sends an email and someone replies, consider it done. That's kind of the sense of the heiress, but the point is, you won't really know whether you've been baptized into Christ until the judgment. So I told the sponsors that you can't tell me today that this child is baptized. I will tell you when we look back at this child's life and we look at the witness in their death, whether or not they were truly baptized. So the baptism is simply entrance into the lifelong process of receiving the daily bread of the gospel and trying to walk according to God's precepts. But we'll see whether you're baptized at the end. That's the key. So they're acting as though because they're baptized, now they have a status. You're either in or you're out. Well, if that's what baptism is, we're back to square one with Jew versus Gentile. It's worse than square one because now it's not Jew versus Gentile. It's Apollos' versus Paul's versus Cephas' versus Christ's. You used to have two. Now you've got six. And it keeps getting worse now. I mean, as we see in the proliferation of identityism in Western culture. But anyways. Exactly. So, you know, I think what I really learned from these readings is that the baptism is only functional if it is according to the teaching. And the teaching is the cross, which is against self-preservation and works against the basic biological imperatives of keeping ourselves alive. Instead, it's saying that there's one teaching, that God is God over all, and that our life is completely in his hands from alpha to omega, from dust to dust, and we're completely servants of the Most High. And this is the only way that our baptism can function. You're trapped between Paul and Christ. You're sandwiched. You can't escape. You have to be shoulder to shoulder with the other in verse 12. There's another option. I like what you said. You have to be according to Scripture. Katagrafi. Mm-hmm. You know, you are literally under the boot of Scripture. It has to control you. It has to, as we learn in the Torah, govern every aspect of your life, even the way you portion out sugar on the table so that it becomes a part of the way you breathe, not just the way that you act. As long as you have breath. Let everything, as the good book says, that has breath praise the Lord. Thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Benton. All right. Thank you, Father. And thank you for stepping in for me. I want you to know I slept nicely. And I'm glad you're feeling better, Father. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.